you guys had power this morning, singing and clapping. Oh, my goodness. And I heard woohoos and cheers. That was awesome. What an amazing morning. I love it. Love hearing uh, and seeing so many people here. And as we return to um, maybe closer to what it was like before, uh, pre-COVID, uh, next week we have no registrations needed to sign up and come to church, right? Yeah. We're not big brother at all, but, you know, it feels like everybody's still tracking you somewhere, right? Even if it's your church attendance, you know, and it's like, it's not just the Holy Spirit that's asking whether or not you've been to church recently, right? Now we know when you've been to church recently. <laughs> but uh, as those restrictions lift and uh, people can come in here freely without having that, we just want to make sure that this place is still a welcoming place and a place that everybody feels comfortable whether you're ready to rip that mask off and burn it out on the front lawn, or if you're the type that needs to keep that mask on a little bit longer. We want everybody to feel welcome here, feel accepted here. Whether you want to sit nice and tight and cozy right up to Joanne right up here on the front and uh, have a hugathon with her, whether you want to do that, or whether you want to put your coat and somebody else's coat and somebody else's coat on either side of you to keep space a little bit longer, we want you to feel comfortable here. And so if you're watching online and you're uh, anticipating your return, we want you to know this place is going to be a place for everybody uh, to feel welcome to return. And we'll let you have your distance if you need it, and we'll let you sit nice and close to Joanne if you need to do that as well. <laughs> so... But we do want this place to make sure everybody can feel welcome, because I know we have the full spectrum of, of comfortability when it, when it comes to returning to uh, pre-pandemic stages or moving on to endemic stages. And we want you all to feel comfortable, and we want you to know that we're taking all that into account as we uh, open up again. So just know that we love you, we care for you, and uh, we want you to feel comfortable no matter what in your return here with us. That's the biggest thing, is that we want you to continue to be here. We want you to be a part of our community. And if you haven't been able to make it in, and if you're watching online or listening to the podcast later, we'd love for you to return and be a part of our community in person with us. Because there's nothing like being together and being able to look each other in the eye and uh, know that when we say, how are you doing? And they say, fine, but you can see in their eyes they're not doing fine. And you know that's a good cue to say, would you like to go for coffee this week? And uh, be able to follow up and say, let's, let's walk through this and journey together. Okay? So we want to do that. We want to do life together here at Life Center. So, all right. Let's dive into our, our word for today, our message for today. We've been going through a power series. Uh, going through power of sin, power of the Holy Spirit in us, power of the Holy Spirit through us. And this week we're going to be looking at the power of our thoughts, the power that our thoughts have. Now, often when watching sports, uh, the commentators will make a comment. Some of you, how many people are sports fans here? A few of you in the house? All right, so you'll get this. All right, the commentators will comment on the play of an athlete. Either they haven't missed a field goal all season. A pitcher is throwing a no-hitter. Uh, she hasn't missed a putt all weekend. And then they do. They miss the field goal. 
someone gets a hit on them, or they the putt lips out and they get that first bogey of the day. And uh, then the commentator talks about how they spoke too soon and that they somehow jinxed them, right? We've all heard that on, on sports commentating and things like that. Well, we do that in life too, don't we? We often knock on wood or whatever this is, plexi. We knock on wood. It was just, uh, just last week I went for treatment at the hospital and I made the comment to the, the nursing crew there about how quiet it was uh, when we were in there. I was in a little bit earlier than I normally go in. And the nurses looked at each other tentatively when I said, oh, it's quiet today. And they kind of looked at each other and they're like, yes, it is. And then a half an hour later, it wasn't as quiet. And then they came back and they're like, we knew we shouldn't have said anything. We spoke too soon. We jinxed it. We do that, don't we, in life? We, and if you may, you may not do it that exactly, but there's, you do it in certain ways. You knew that, like, you know, Murphy's Law was going to, you know, catch you. It was going to bite you in the behind. You know, it was going to come around to, to catch you. We just live by this whole idea that things are going to catch up to us. Maybe, maybe you're like me and you have moments where it happens too, where you're just like, I knew it, I knew it. And you had this thinking pattern all along that was like, this was going to happen. And you feel like you caused it or made it happen by the way you talked or thought about it. Now, while the extreme majority of these situations are in fact completely unrelated, There is no truth to the fact that a commentator sitting up in a booth at the top of a stadium had an impact on whether or not that that man made a field goal, kicked a ball through the uprights. He had no impact on that moment. Now, most of the time, like I said, they're unrelated. There certainly is a tie, though, between our thoughts and outcomes in life. The term self-fulfilling prophecy comes from this whole idea where we bring into existence the very thing that we spoke of. Usually, though, it's negative, isn't it? We speak those negative things into existence in our lives. Now, what I'm not saying is this, that if you just think negative thoughts, bad things are always going to happen. Or on the, conversely, if you think positive thoughts, then only good things are going to happen to you. If that were the case, then just start thinking about that million dollars right now and it's going to be yours. We all know that's not the case because there's been way too many times in life where we sat there and was like, what would it be like if I won the lottery? What would I do without winning? And then you remember, oh yeah, I have to actually play the lottery to win the lottery. (laughs) But we do. We, we think on things. What would it be like if, I, if I, could, I could do these positive things out there? So I would make sure I donate to charity right off the top. We have all these things that we think of positively or whatever and we hope and dream for. But they never come about. So it can't be just that, that easy and that simple. And that is a twisted lie of the enemy. It contains some truth, but not full truth. Earl Nightingale used to say this on a radio program that he had a long time ago. Radio, for some of those that you maybe are a little bit younger, you can sometimes hear it in your car when you play, and there's music that you're playing that's not your MP3 player, your phone hooked up to your car. 
It's like the car has this magic music station attached to it. So, but he had a radio program where he would just talk on the radio. We still have that on the AM dial, I think, somewhere. AM is another dial on the radio that played. <laughs> dial on a radio. Should I explain that one? <laughs> We're in such a different world now, aren't we? Everything touchscreen. I was looking at the latest Tesla, and the screen is like almost as big as the windshield. And I'm like, how is that not distracting when you're driving having a giant screen there? Anyways, I'm digressing. All right. When we plant negative thoughts and fear-filled ideas into our minds, we create these mental patterns for those thoughts to travel both quicker and intuitively. We start creating these shortcuts in our brains from what could happen to what will happen, and we just find faster routes to get to that end goal of things going badly or things not turning out the way we want or our fears coming true. Did you know that as humans, we were not actually designed to deal with fear? Did you know that? That your body has not been made up to deal with fear. Scientists and all those people who do smart things to understand our bodies have discovered that in our genetic, mental, emotional, physical makeup, there's nothing, absolute, or there's nothing designed to deal with fear. It is something that we have to learn. It's something that we impose on ourselves, fear. What we were geared towards and designed for is love. Isn't that amazing? And we can see that in an infant, can't you? They, they don't fear. They just, they just love. And if they're crying, it's not usually out of fear. It's out of, I need something. Not a fear-based cry, but I need something cry. And then we learn how to be afraid of things. We're taught how to fear things. And it's amazing. It's amazing that scientists are just now catching up and affirming what our sacred text, the Bible, has been telling us for a millennia. First Timothy, or 2 Timothy 1.7 says this, For God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment, or a sound mind. He hasn't given us a spirit of fear. He didn't design for us to have a spirit of fear. He designed for us to have a spirit of love, power, and sound judgment. And yet we've learned in our thoughts, in our emotions and feelings, to take and hold fear and hold negative thoughts and to live in weakness and not in sound judgment. So our thoughts, they do have power more power than we often recognize. And the power isn't seen in quick, powerful gestures, but in process of formation. The Grand Canyon wasn't carved out in just a single moment, and neither do our, our thoughts, the power of our thoughts, carve the rut of our lives in just one moment. It takes time and repetition for them to create the patterns that we live in. You can develop patterns of thought that begin to control that narrative in your life. And Jesus knew this to be true. When he tells his disciples that he's going to be killed and then again rise on the third day, Peter, one of his disciples, knew that he had a different idea of how things should go, that uh, that's the way it should be, and that 
Peter had thoughts about what it would look like, and it betrays who he is as a follower of Jesus. See, Peter only hears the first part of what Jesus is saying, that he's going to die. That seems to be an end of what's going to happen. And as soon as Jesus says something that he doesn't see fitting the narrative of his life or the life that Jesus should have, the power of his thoughts pull on him. Isn't this true of us in our relationships, in our, our ability to scroll through media? Until we, until we stop listening, we hear what feeds our fears, don't we? We don't listen to what's going on. We hear only until what we wanted to hear or what we fear happens, and then we stop listening. See, Peter immediately begins to rebuke Jesus, saying that this never needs to happen, that because Peter's there, this will not happen. But Jesus, listen to how he responds to them. Jesus turns and told Peter, he says this, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Now, we often read this line and think, wow, that's a harsh statement. Man, I don't know if I could handle that if Jesus turned and said that to me. If he looked me in the eye and said, get thee behind me, Satan, I'd be like, what did I do? How did I get into this position that he's, he's thinking of me like Satan? Is Peter really embodying Satan in that moment? Is Jesus casting Satan out of Peter in that moment? It's this tough metaphor or understanding for us to think through. And the answer is like no and yes at the same time. No, Peter is not possessed by Satan himself in that moment. But yes, Peter is entertaining thoughts of the flesh, lies of the enemy of what reality is. Our thoughts are powerful, but God's thoughts and ways are ultimate love and power. Theologian D.A. Horton says it like this, Peter is a prime example of how a follower of Jesus can use their effort and energy to position Jesus as the ruler of the kingdom they want to be established. And Jesus' response still echoes in our day. He will not be controlled by his followers. God will not be controlled by us. Neither, though, will he force us to be controlled by him. He asks us to follow him. He asks us to accept him. He asks us to submit to his leadership in our lives. And this is something that becomes a daily endeavor for us. We daily take up our cross and follow him. We daily die to self, self-will, self-thoughts, and we live in him. What we see Jesus do after this moment with Peter is explained elsewhere in the Bible. In 2 Corinthians 10, 4 to 6, it says this, We demolish arguments in every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. And we are ready to punish any disobedience once your obedience is complete. We take every thought captive 
to obey Christ. At that moment with Peter, this is precisely what Jesus is doing, teaching and showing that thoughts need to be taken captive. Peter thinks there is another way other than obedience, and Jesus takes the thought captive. Why? Because, again, we become what we behold. What we entertain in our minds becomes that self-fulfilling prophecy in our lives. The Bible addresses formation, that formation in our minds of becoming who we are, being formed by what we are beholding in Romans 12 too, The Apostle Paul lays out two types of formation or becoming. He says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. In other words, don't let the thinking of the culture around you shape you. Rather, let God transform you from your sin nature to his nature by renewing your thought processes so you can intuitively know what it is to please God and to do his will. Another person that followed Jesus that we can look up to besides Peter is, is John the Baptist. He's another great example of us for us. Now, John was Jesus' cousin. And as his ministry time started just before Jesus' time, he was trying to get Israel ready for the Messiah, for Jesus to come. And Jesus thought he was pretty fantastic. So much so, in Luke 7, 28, he says this, I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John. Yet, in John, we see this tension of his allowing God to transform his mind. In Matthew eleven two to 3, we read this about John. Now, when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples and asked him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? In his mind, he's beginning to doubt and he's like, Jesus, are you the one? Are you really the one that is going to, to save us? Now, this is after he had baptized Jesus. And when he baptized Jesus, we, we can read in the account what happened, right? The Holy Spirit came down like a dove. There's Jesus right there. And, the, and then God the Father from heaven says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. There should be no doubt in John's mind and heart who Jesus is and whether he is the one. But our thoughts can grab us sometime, can't they? Here he is, his circumstances begin to, to betray him and in, in that he looks around and he's in his cell. He was standing up for righteousness. He was standing up for God's best for humanity and he's stuck in prison. And in that place where things don't seem to be going his way, when all those positive thoughts of the Christ returning and the Messiah coming to bring in a new kingdom, all those positive vibes didn't end up in him doing well. They ended up with him in prison. And in that moment, he's like, are you really the one? Can we really trust you? Should we really believe? And yet we also know 
that John said something totally different. He said this in John 3.30. He said, he must increase and I must decrease. See the tension that's going on in his life? He knows that he needs to and his ministry needs to end. It needs to come to an end because the Holy Spirit has now fallen on Jesus and his ministry as the Messiah has started. And he needs, I need to step back from the stage because the Messiah is here. He knew he needed to decrease and Jesus increase. And yet he had that tension going on. And if we can see that in who Jesus says, there's no one greater that's been born of a woman. Um, I don't know who else there would be other than people who are born of women. But I guess Jesus is using some fun there to say, everyone, (laughs) everyone, he must increase, but I must decrease. Our focus then becomes, what does it look like for us to decrease and for God to increase in our lives, specifically through our thought life, because of the power that it has over us? If we want to see a reduction in stress and anxiety and fear and discouragement, as we remind ourselves again and again, where must I decrease? We can start by recognizing the clear choices that are in front of us. We can acknowledge that God is the source of life and everything else leads to death, even in our thoughts. Deuteronomy 30, 19 to 20 says this, and this is, this is Moses as he's standing before the people of Israel after they've wandered the desert for 40 years and they're about to enter the promised land and they've been given the law that's supposed to give them life. And he says this, this day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice. Hold fast to him, for the Lord is your life. How we think about this matters. How we think about God matters. God gives us the opportunity to choose his ways even in the midst of things not going the way we wanted. What this touches on is something that Dr. Carolyn Leaf writes about in her book, Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess. She says this, although events and circumstances can't be controlled, we can control our reactions to these events and circumstances. This is mind management in action. The bottom line is this, we cannot improve our lifestyle or be more Christ-like, if we're looking at it from a spiritual perspective there, until we learn how to manage our thinking. She defines the mind as simply being how we think, feel, and choose. So when you think of that that verse that says, we haven't been given... Uh, a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. That'd be a sound mind to think, feel, and choose. And the greatest commandment God has given us is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, and with all your strength. Love God with the wholeness of your spirit, mind, and body. Our minds are a key part of how we are to love God. And this isn't just a mental assent to the emotion of love. 
It's an all-encompassing endeavor to spend our lives on. And this isn't a romantic pursuit, but a pursuit of life, of freedom, of love, all from their origin, God. So how do we do this? For it seems like we, like Peter, are constantly having our thoughts take us captive rather than the other way around. Paul would remark about this battlefield of the mind like this. He said, for I know the good itself does not dwell in me, but that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. When we allow our mind and the mental thoughts that we have to control us and to lead us down paths we do not want to go, what it's doing is it's shifting the alignment of how God wants us to live. And now our mind is in control rather than Jesus being in control, rather than the spirit being in control. Now we've put ourselves on the throne in our lives. Just like we saw, if you know the story of Adam and Eve, what happens to them when the, the enemy comes along and says, he didn't say you're surely going to die. What he's, what he's, what's really going to happen is you're going to be like him. You're going to know good and evil like him. Your mind is going to have the thoughts that he has. So why don't you take that so you can have his mind? And what do we do? We rebel and we took a sinful way to try and have what God wanted to freely give us anyway. I would suggest that to live, taking our thoughts captive and having the mind of Christ starts with this. It's in our spirit that we must be in control of our lives, not our mind or our body, but our spirit needs to lead who we are. While God will renew all things, we are yet to be fully renewed until Jesus returns. Until then... It is our spirit that is reborn, and our mind and our body are sanctified in him. Now, when speaking with Nicodemus, Jesus says this. He says, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. In John 4, 24, it says this, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truthfulness. 1 Corinthians 16, 17 says this, but he who is joined with the Lord is one spirit. In Romans 8, 16, it says, God's spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. We know who he is, and we know who we are, Father and children. If we allow the Holy Spirit to lead our spirit, our spirit then can direct our mind, our thoughts, feelings, choices, and our body. There is, a, there is an alignment that we see both in scriptural teaching and in the life of Jesus. What did Jesus say about what he did and said? He only did and said what he saw and heard the Father doing. What the Spirit led him to is what Jesus did. And so when we allow the Holy Spirit to guide our spirit and then our spirit to lead our mind and body, we can become 
in alignment with what God wants for us to do. We can see our thought life fall into alignment with what God has for us rather than choosing the ruts of this world and the cultures and patterns of this world. We align ourselves with God. Paul outlines this for us in his letter to the church in Corinth. And a fair warning here. This is a big scripture I'm going to read. So that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of this, the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord uh, of glory. However, as it is written, no, uh, what no eye has seen and what no ear has heard and what no human ha- mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things that God has revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thought except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught, uh, taught us by human wisdom, but in words. I think I got that right. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. It cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, But such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That was a big scripture, I know. But what do we see here? And I encourage you to go and and read through that scripture again uh, on your your own time afterwards. 1 Corinthians 2, uh, verses 5 to 16. What do we see here? The first thing that I saw in that passage is this. In verses 5 and 6, having the mind of Christ is nothing like the wisdom or thoughts of people, of our culture. The mind of Christ is nothing like the wisdom of the culture around us. And so when we have the mind of Christ, when we have his thoughts, it's going to be distinctly different. Second thing I see here, having the mind of Christ is wisdom from God, once hidden, now revealed. We see that in verse 7. This is a wisdom that was once hidden but now revealed about the gospel of who he is and how to live our lives. Number three, having the mind of Christ is through the Spirit. It is the Spirit that allows us to know the mind of Christ. Number four, having the mind of Christ, again, is only understood through the Spirit. Verse 14, having the mind of Christ, this is the fifth thing, Uh, gives us discernment in spiritual matters, verse 15. So having the mind of Christ is of utmost importance for us. And allowing our spirit to follow the Holy Spirit is a huge part of that process. 
And I wish it was just as simple as believe, receive, and achieve. But it stops after believe and receive. As we believe in Jesus and receive new life in him, which is big fancy words, that would be justification, we begin the process of becoming his followers, which would be our sanctification. The mental journey of life and of our sin nature has taken us on, requires a reworking, a renewing, like we talked about earlier. And that is a process. That is a planting of ideas and thoughts that produce life, not death. It is the daily dying and submitting and renewing in Christ. It is a process that, like Peter, like John the Baptist, and like the Apostle Paul, takes time. Scientifically speaking, that time it takes is roughly 63 days. It takes 63 days to change how we think about something. Again, Dr. Carolyn Leaf uses uh, a format to, to engage our minds in this process. And uh, I've, I've modified it slightly to, to uh, have the acronym GROWER, uh, since we all need to be growing in Christ and to have the mind of Christ. So if you'll allow me uh, to work through this. The first one is this, gather, gather. Listen and watch what you are thinking about and how you are feeling. So gather your thoughts. Take time in the day to say, where are my thoughts coming from, my feelings coming from? Are they coming from God? Are they coming from uh, other places? So gather your thoughts, and then I guess the second would be reflect. And that's where you're asking where the roots of those thoughts are coming from. Are they from God or self or man or the culture? Where are my thoughts and feelings coming from? Then the next one, organize. Journal. Organize your thoughts and find ways forward. Are you thinking about uh, things from a godly perspective, or are you, you allowing fear or man's wisdom to cloud your judgment? The next one, widen. Run what you have written down with someone who is wise. Look at what you're going through, your thought life, your patterns that you're following, and run them by somebody you know that is godly and wise and can help you on that journey. The fifth thing, engage. Apply what you have learned in some tangible way. If, the, if your thought life and if your emotional life and your patterns are leading you in a negative, negative direction, find an, a healthy way to engage in changing how you think and act about those things. And then repeat. Continue this process of renewing your mind, renewing how you see God and how you think uh, with the mind of Christ. So let's put it into action by just reading one verse and then seeing how we think about it. First Thessalonians 5, 15 to 18 says this, Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, when we hear that, we hear rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, giving thanks in everything. We can be, how am I supposed to do that? Do you know the type of life I live? Do you know how, how uh, you know, like... It, some of you guys are work as teachers, and you know what it's like working with little rugrats all day long. I'm supposed to give thanks in all situations. I, I, believe me, I'm praying without ceasing in those situations and not to choke their little necks, right? You're like, but like, how do I live with that type of like positive, like, you know, worship attitude, right? But what is the opposite of rejoicing always? Always criticizing, Right? always criticizing. 
We can, we can find ourselves doing this with ease, always criticizing. We look at something somebody's done, and we're like, well, we could have done that better. If I had been talking up there, I wouldn't have made those points. I would have said it a little differently. We can easily criticize what people are saying. How about the opposite of praying without ceasing, worrying without ceasing? If we can worry without ceasing, can we not learn to pray without ceasing, to worship without ceasing? What is the opposite of giving thanks in everything? Always wanting to be someone, somewhere, or have something we are not. Can we live with contentment? Can we give thanks in our situations? If we can learn those patterns to criticize and to worry and to feel discontentment, then we can change our thought life into having the rejoicing and the praying and the giving thanks. But it takes that time of renewing and creating new thought patterns because in our minds, like I said at the beginning, we create those shortcuts to those end results of criticism and worry and discontentment. We found the, the fast way to get there in our brains, and we need to rewire new connections, neuro, new neural pathways to contentment, to rejoicing, to constant prayer and communication with our Father in heaven. We can go three weeks without food, three days without water, three minutes without oxygen, but we can't go three seconds without thinking. For as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. And yet, the Bible also says what of the heart? The heart is the most deceptive thing. So as he thinks in his heart, so he is. So would we take a moment to say, God, your spirit align with my spirit, my spirit, you be in control of me and lead my mind and my mind lead my body rather than taking a disordered approach to how we follow God. The steps between the life we desire in Christ and the one we have now is found in our daily thoughts. It's found in aligning our spirit with the Holy Spirit and having our minds and our bodies in submission to the Spirit as he teaches us to have the mind of Christ. As we close today, this scripture that I'm going to read, I'm going to pray it as a blessing over you and over myself as we find ourselves truly and fully in Christ. Again, if you want to have your hands open to receive, I invite you to do so. There's nothing magical about it, but it's just a posture with our bodies to say that our minds and our spirits are in alignment with what we want from God through his spirit. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. God, we pray a blessing over this congregation that they would have the mind of Christ. But we know this isn't easy work. This isn't just a light switch on and off. It is a reworking and a regenerating of our thought life that doesn't go to worry and fear and discontentment, but it goes to contentment and peace and love in you. And so, God, we, we agree to submit to you 
to allow our spirit to be in alignment with your spirit and to have our mind come into submission and alignment with our spirit. God, may you teach us to have the mind of Christ, to allow your spirit to lead us and guide us in all truth and all love. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.